Uh, we're looking at uh, the second chapter of Philippians. We, we finally made it through the first chapter. Uh, we have been looking at this beautiful letter, this very powerful letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, which was the, a very significant church for Paul. It was the, the first church that he had planted in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, uh, meaning that it really was the first time in human history when the gospel took root in the continent, on the continent of Europe. And so this church had a lot of significance to the Apostle Paul, and, and this church was really healthy. I mean, from what we can tell, uh, even just from the first chapter, they were very centered on the gospel, uh, they were very tight-knit as a family, they were on mission to make disciples, and they weren't just making disciples in their local region, they were actually also making disciples uh, beyond their borders. And, and one of the ways they were doing that was praying for the Apostle Paul and uh, giving him finances so that he could continue the mission that uh, had, had been so meaningful to them personally, but now they wanted uh, to see that mission go out uh, to the nations. And so one of the ways to think about the book of Philippians is a thank you note for financial provision that's being given uh, to the Apostle Paul. Now you would think if they're, you know, doing so well, they're healthy, that Paul might want to, you know, tap the brakes a little bit. Like, 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 you know, why encourage them forward and, and, and exhort them to advance if they're doing, doing so well? But that's not at all what we see Paul doing. We see Paul seeing their health, seeing their growth, and, and wanting to leverage that health and growth for even further advancement, both in the growth of their own character, but also in the advancement of gospel mission. And so last week, we, we saw the, the end of chapter 1, where Paul is, is like exhorting them to stand for the gospel and then to strive side by side and suffer uh, for the gospel mission. Just one little snippet from that first chapter, Philippians 1.27, he says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side for the faith of the gospel. That is not tapping on the brake. That is exhorting them to continue standing for the gospel and striving and suffering for the sake of gospel mission. But how do you sustain that kind of spiritual fervor? Now, churches in America, they, they, they tend to have a fairly predictable uh, lifespan. Uh, you, can, you can even track it on a curve. Um, uh, this is known as the sigmoid curve, which if you've taken any business uh, classes, you've probably talked about the sigmoid curve. There's the, the start and this significant growth, and so you're moving up the curve very quickly, and then you finally get to a point of, of maturity, and if you're not careful, uh, that maturity turns into a plateau, which then turns into a decline, which then turns into the death of your organization. Well, church growth can look very similar, where when you start off, uh, you're desperate, you're praying, you're raising money, you're, you're taking risks, and you start to grow. And then out of that growth comes some maturity. And the temptation is to then tap the brakes and begin to plateau, decline, and eventual uh, death. Now, it's interesting, Mercy House's context is such that we find ourselves in the startup, grow, mature, startup, grow, mature, on a, on a constant cycle. 
uh, partly because of the transient nature of this this region and the, the students coming in and out. Every September is a startup, and we grow, and then we mature, and then September we uh, do it all again. And this is hard. I mean, th- this, this is difficult to remain in this kind of startup, grow, and mature, but in other ways, it's kept us alive because we are constantly having to depend on God and uh, to be in that kind of desperate situation where we're growing and maturing. Uh, the Philippians are in this uh, situation where they have matured, and now Paul wants to make sure that they keep starting up and growing and maturing. And again, th- this is not easy to do it at least not in your own strength. In fact, you cannot do this in your own strength. You, you, you cannot continue that upward trajectory of, of starting new ministries and growing and maturing and continuing that uh, throughout the lifespan uh, of, of the church. And so how, how if, if you don't sustain that in your own strength, in your own organizational wisdom, how do you do that? Well, you sustain it with the gospel. I'm pretty sure you knew I was going to say that. But, but the, the gospel that, that saves us also shapes us. And so the gospel is, is what Paul gives them in Philippians chapter 2 after he has exhorted them in this really significant way to advance and continue and to grow and to, to keep up on that, on that trajectory. And so... Let's take a look at this. This is one of the most beautiful scriptures in regard to the description of who Jesus is and the implications of being saved by the gospel. So Philippians 2.1, um, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, look, look how Paul's motivating the, the church of Philippi to stay a, a tight-knit family on the mission. He's, he's motivating them by reminding them of the benefits they've received in the gospel. Think about this. He's, he's reminding them of, of this encouragement and this love and this comfort that they have because they're in Christ. He's reminding them of, of, of the power of the Spirit and how it is... Uh, giving them this uh, affection and this sympathy from God. Or, or NIV says tenderness and compassion uh, from God. Uh, King James Version says bowels and mercies. Uh, it, it's actually a really good translation, the translation of bowels, uh, that this word actually is communicating deep affection that's coming from your inmost body part, which in the ancient world wasn't your heart, it was your bowel, right? So we might say that the Spirit is offering tenderness and affection to us from the bottom of the Spirit's heart, would probably how we would, we would say it. And these benefits are received by those who have believed the good news, those that have believed in what Christ has done for them on the cross, to save them from their sins and reconcile them to God, their Father. And so these these are the benefits that they are receiving. And you might think of it a little bit like, as he's he's enumerating all those benefits, and it's certainly not an exhaustive list, but there's some really good benefits there. It's like he's pulling back on a bow, and he's storing up energy, 
And, and as that potential energy gets to its full force, he then lets go and he shoots an arrow. And so this is what he does in the very next verse, verse 3. Uh, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, so if you've experienced this encouragement and comfort and tenderness and affection through Christ by the power of the Spirit, then you should count others better than yourselves. Then you should empty yourself of self-interest and self-promotion and look to the interests of others. Uh, he's letting you know that those that are saved by the gospel are shaped by the same gospel. Right? So he's saying you're saved by the gospel of grace. Now, we need that if we're going to actually live out this incredibly high bar of emptying ourselves of self-interest and looking to the interest of others. I mean, we just can't do this by ourselves. We're too sinful. We're too selfish. So we have to be saved by the gospel to even consider what he is exhorting us uh, to do. Because our natural inclination is, is merely to uh, look out for our own self-interest and to promote ourselves. Now think about this. What if tomorrow Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi showed up to work and they were thinking this kind of stuff in their, in their heads from Philippians 2. They're thinking, my intention is not to seek my own interests, but the interest of others, right? And, and so Nancy comes in and says, Donald, I'm here to try to look out for your best interests and the best interests of this country. And then Donald's like, no, that's interesting. I got up this morning thinking the same thing. I want to look to your interests, Nancy, and to the interests of the country. Let's, let's talk. Wouldn't that be amazing? Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen tomorrow. But Paul's saying it happens in the church. That the brothers and sisters come together in, in a family. And they look not to their own interests, but they look to the interests of others. And if everyone's doing that inside the church, it creates this incredible family that can then leverage everything that they have to participate in the mission of making disciples of the nations. Um, then Paul knows, he knows that there's going to be pushback, right? Like, like when he says, empty yourself of self-interest and self-promotion and look to the interests of others, the, the sinful part of us, we, we want to push back on that and, and we want to say, why, why should I have to do that? That's ridiculous. Everyone around me is looking to their own self-interest. Why should I have to lay down my self-interest? That's just, that's just not fair. I'm not interested in that. And Paul knows that. And so what Paul says next in Philippians 2, it's like, this is a mic drop. Like, like this, this, this is... A, 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 such a challenging uh, way of dealing with that kind of a pushback of self-protection and, and self-interest and self-promotion. He says this in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <laughs> so if the question is, 
Why should I have to empty myself of self-interest and look to the interests of others? Paul's answer to that question is, well, Jesus did it. And if anyone's worthy of only worrying about their own interests, it would be the divine Son of God. And instead, he emptied himself of his own self-interest and looked to the interests of others. Look to us. Look to our interests. That's what he's doing on the cross there is he's dying for our sins. He's looking to our interests. He's pouring himself out. He's emptying him, himself for the purpose of saving us from our sin. So this, this gospel, this pouring out of self-interest, this is what saved us, but it's also what shapes us. Right? So Paul's saying about this gospel that saves, he's saying it also gives you a pattern for how to live your life in the church and on mission in the world. Uh, the way he does this is describing both the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. And what I just read was the humiliation part, right? So let's, let's walk through that. The humiliation begins with him taking on a human nature. He says he was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Theologians call this the incarnation, where Jesus, who is fully God, and part, he, he is one of the persons of the triune God, takes on a human form. He takes on human flesh. And so now he's still one person, but he's two natures. And so he doesn't give up his identity as God, but he takes on this human uh, nature. And so him doing that is quite a humiliation. I mean, when you compare Jesus walking around on the dusty roads of Palestine as a misunderstood Bible teacher... You compare that to how he's treated in heaven, it, it's quite a humiliation. I mean, here's, here's an example. Revelation 5, 11 and 12, uh, John writes this, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I mean, that's what he's worthy of. He's worthy of, of, of the, the whole uh, creation, seen and unseen, ascribing ultimate worth to him. So for, even for him to show up in an upscale mall and have a really nice latte would be a, a real downgrade for him. But he doesn't just become a human. Paul says he becomes a servant. He takes the form of a servant. He bows low in service to human beings. Jesus actually, he, he speaks of this in John 13. Um, and and, and this, is, this has got to be the most amazing display of Jesus and his service uh, other than the, the cross itself. 13.3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. This is, this is part of his humiliation, right? He didn't just become a human being. He became a servant of human beings. But not only did he do those things, but he also died. Paul writes that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So the second person of the Trinity, fully God, 
took on human flesh, became a servant, and then died. I, I, this is like the most humiliating thing that a, that a human being really experiences, where, where you become so weak that your heart can no longer pump blood through your veins. Your lungs can no longer draw a breath. Everything shuts down. Your body becomes limp. You begin to decompose. There's nothing more humiliating. And the divine Son of God, who took on flesh in the form of a servant, died. Not only did he die, <laughs> and the humiliation just, just continues in these verses here. He dies on a cross. Right? Paul says, even death on a cross. Jesus dies a convicted criminal. He's mocked, he's tortured, he's shamed, and he's brutally murdered on a cross. And this is, this is all in obedience, right? He even mentions that he's obeying the directives of his father as he's doing this. So, so why is Paul kind of displaying in great detail the humiliation of, of Christ? Well, Think about the word mind that he mentions multiple times in this passage. He is saying that this same mind that Jesus had when, when he stepped out of heaven, became a human, became a servant, submitted himself to death, even death on the cross, that this is the mind that should be adopted by the Christian. And so he's saying this, this gospel that saved you, this thing that Jesus did to save you from your sin, it also informs the way you live your life. It shapes the way you live your life. And so just as Jesus emptied himself of self-interest and looked to the interests of others, a.k.a. us, who are in need of, of being saved, we too can empty ourselves of self-interest and look to the interests of others. This gospel shapes us. Now, Jesus uses the same logic. After he gets done washing the disciples' feet, these are his comments on what he had just done. John 13, verse 12. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also should do just as I have done for you. You see what he's doing there? Same thing Paul's doing. He's saying, if I, your master and Lord, will, 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 will stoop to serve you, then of course, part of how you respond to that grace that I'm giving you in the gospel is that you would become a servant of others. Now, Paul doesn't stop with the description of the humiliation. He also describes the exaltation. That starts in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Jesus goes through the humiliation of becoming a human, becoming a servant, dying, dying on a cross, but then he also experiences an exaltation. This name, his name that was once uh, a cause for shame and embarrassment is now the name that is above every other name. 
uh, he who was wrongly convicted and abused and brutally murdered and killed by the governing authorities is now the Lord of all. Uh, he who was cursed and mocked uh, by everyone who passed by is, is now having every tongue confess that he is Jesus Christ the Lord. This is part of the gospel, right? This is the part of the gospel that saves us. That Jesus didn't just become a human and die on a cross. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. That resurrection and ascension is proof that what he did on the cross actually did defeat sin and death. And so when we believe in the gospel, we're, we're believing, yes, in his death, burial, but we're also believing in his resurrection and his, and his ascension because it is that that proves that he has truly defeated sin and death. But what does this exaltation have to do with us? Well, as Christians, we too experience an exaltation from out of our humiliation. I mean, we are, as Christians, are, we're called to live lives of, of, of looking to the interests of others, both in our church and also in the world. And as we do that, we know that ultimately we will experience an exaltation, that, that we will experience an exaltation from our Father through the Son, by the Spirit, that the triune God will exalt us, not above himself, of course, but there will be an exaltation of us in the life to come. The Apostle Paul, he, he's very attuned to this. He's always talking about the finish line, right? I mean, Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we've called this uh, upward and onward, right? And so part of how he moves onward in service to others is that he's thinking about upward. He's thinking about the exaltation that he'll receive, the prize, he calls it, here. And then very few verses later in chapter 3 of Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, right? He's going upward. And from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This one who was humiliated so that we could be saved from our sins and exalted to be king uh, over all things, he is coming back. He's coming back for us. And he is going to exalt us. He is going to give us new bodies. He's going to usher us into a forever kingdom that will be an exaltation of us. So how to respond to this? Um, one is allow the gospel to save you. And the other is to then allow the gospel to shape you. And so for, for some of you, 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 you've not yet been saved by this good news of what Jesus did in his humiliation and in his exaltation. When you heard this verse read earlier, when it said, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, you're like, no, I, ha I haven't received that. I haven't experienced that. And it may be because you, you're not a Christian. You're maybe a churchgoer, a good person, maybe you know a few things about the Bible, but, but, but when you really understand that the gospel is the only thing that can save you from your sin and you receive that forgiveness and that reconciliation with God as your father, 
you receive these things. You experience these things of encouragement and tenderness and affection and comfort. And so if you've not yet done that, to, to, to reach out in faith this morning and, and ask the Lord to forgive you and to usher you into that relationship whereby you are saved by the gospel. If, if you want to dive a little deeper into that, we would encourage you to go on our website. We've got a, a page that goes a little deeper into the gospel truth. And so it's mercyhouse365.org slash respond. And you can read further about what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. And you can also respond. You, you can fill out the form that's there and uh, let us know if you have questions or if you receive Christ today. We'd love to know that and be able to pray for you and and uh, to send you some information uh, about how to follow Christ. So once, once saved by the gospel, then to allow the gospel to shape us. And two, two major thoughts here. Uh, if we're allowing the gospel to, sh- to shape us, uh, we do give ourselves away in service to others, especially to those in the church. So if we're allowing the gospel to shape us, we do give ourselves away. We, we look to the interests of others. We, we, uh, uh, we're thinking about that. We're praying about that. We're seeking ways uh, to do that. We're, we're doing this thing that verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what you're doing. If you've been saved by the gospel, you want to respond to that by counting yourself, uh, counting others more significant than yourself. This word count, it's such an interesting Greek word that's translated there. It's hegemai. And uh, hegemai is the word where you, where you get hegemonic. If you've been looking at any of the uh, racial justice conversations, they talk a lot about hegemonic power, kind of this systemic power that's over uh, societies that, that is uh, not just, right? But this is talking about uh, power that we've been given as children of God through what Christ has done for us on the, Christ, on, on the cross. And now we can take that power and we can use it to love other people, to serve other people. It's the very opposite of, of what is being critiqued uh, in these conversations about racial injustice. And so we, we get to uh, do this hegemai where we get to count others better than ourselves and use what power we've been given through the grace of the gospel to serve. And these things are simple things, right? These are things like pray for others. That, that's looking to the interest of others when you don't just pray for yourself. You actually pray for someone else or, or you encourage someone, reach out to someone with a text or you know they're going through a difficult time and, and you just take go that extra mile to, to encourage them knowing that they're, they're having a hard time. You take a meal to someone, right? That, that's looking to the interest of others. Like you still got to feed yourself and maybe feed your family and then on top of that you make a meal for someone else and, and, and that is looking to the interest uh, of others. Uh, leading a discipleship group or, or a small group. Man, that takes you time. It takes time for preparation, time for relationships, reaching out, the group time itself. It's looking to the interest of others, others that are needing to be discipled uh, with the Word of God. Um, you know, people that came to work day yesterday, they're looking to the interest of, of others, looking to the interests of, of the mission of the church. I'm sure all of them had something else they could have been doing. They, they, they could have been working in their own yard. Uh, but they, they came here because they wanted to look to the interests uh, of others. Giving your resources away, supporting church, the, the ministry of the church through giving, that's looking to the interests 
of others. We all have things that we could spend our money on. There's a long list at everyone's house of what could use financial resources and, and, and taking a, a generous portion of that and giving it uh, to the ministry of the church and giving it to individuals in need and other organizations that's looking to the interests uh, of others. Working with the kids and MH kids that's looking to the interests of others. Being a leader in the church, it, it, that's looking to the interests of others, right? The, the, the opportunity for leadership in our church is definitely an opportunity to look to the interests of others. And so if you isolated one of these things and you, and you said, you know, bringing a meal to someone or leading a group, you'd say, is that really having the same mind as Jesus in his humiliation and exaltation? I mean, you might say, yeah, it just doesn't seem like it parallels. But it's, it's really a lifestyle of these kinds of things. It's a whole lifestyle of looking to the interests of others. I mean, the person in my life that's the best example of that is my own wife. I, I'm, I'm astounded at what Melanie does to pour herself out in teaching the Word to people, to pouring herself out to uh, bring meals to people, to call people, to text people, to encourage them, uh, to, to, to take care of me, take care of our children, um, I mean, she's sending me out the door today with a big plate of hot, you know, fresh-baked uh, blueberry cake to take the staff, just to encourage them, right? And, and we've had a whole week at camp, and we're all tired. And so, so it's a lifestyle, and that lifestyle, it, it exemplifies what Christ did on the cross, his humiliation, his exaltation. So do give yourself away for uh, the service of others. The other thing is don't seek your own exaltation. I, I really think these need to, we need to say both of these, right? Do give yourself away for the interests of others. Don't seek your own exaltation. Uh, Jesus teaches this in a beautiful parable in Luke 14. He's, it says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is teaching that the same kind of principle, right? He's like, you go to this fancy banquet, and you just kind of rush up to the front table and sit down, assuming that, of course, you have a place at the front table. And then people have to come by and whisper in your ear and go, I'm oh, sorry, that's not your seat. He's like, don't do that, right? Humble yourself. Serve, consider the interest of others. And yeah, if, if you get some exaltation, then by all means, allow the Lord to exalt you. You, you don't want to be falsely humble when, when, the, when the door opens for you to serve or to lead or, or to be given some kind of a, of a larger platform. You, you take it. You humbly step into that. But you don't go looking for it. You don't go trying uh, to, to promote yourself and to promote uh, your interests. So, do give yourself away for the interests of others, but don't exalt 
yourself. Now, the barriers to this kind of life, of course, it's our sin. It's our sin. It's our personal sin, and it's the sin of those that we're trying to serve, right? And so our personal sin, I know for me, the things that crop up are just my own selfishness, just in general, um, that I, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And as long as, you know, service fits into that, then I'm, I'm a big servant. But if, if that doesn't fit into that, then that selfishness kind of crops up. Or apathy, it's, it's another form of selfishness where I'm like, you know, I just don't care. I see this person, they, they, they need to be encouraged, they have needs. I'm like, ah, I just, I'm not feeling it today. Um, or control. So being a servant you, you lose your ability to control, control your finances, control your, your, uh, your time. And so a lot, of, a lot of times it's about control. It's like, I don't want to lean into that act of service because I'm going to lose my control. And what we do is we kind of spiritualize uh, some excuses. Like we come up and we say, well, I'm just not called to that. I, I, I just don't have time for that. That's not my gift. <laughs> And oftentimes, it's a veneer that's covering up things like selfishness, apathy, and a desire for control. Now, sometimes the way that we deal with that is that we then shift into duty. And we're like, well, I know this needs to be done. I know my heart is full of selfishness and apathy and a desire to control, but I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to do it because I know it's my duty. You know, honestly, that's not that helpful either. That, that's still full of self-interest and self-promotion. And so what do we do? We go to the gospel. We go to the gospel. And so we, we, we see these things crop up when these opportunities to look to the interests of others present themselves, and instead of either spiritualizing up some excuses or going into duty mode, we go to the gospel. And we say, Jesus, look, I know that this needs to be done I know you're calling me to it. Part of how I know that is because my eyes see it. I see the need. And that is because your spirit is telling me that this is a need. And God, I want to come at this from a heart that is actually Christ exalting and not me exalting. And ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask the Lord to transform you. I'm telling you, he loves that kind of prayer. He will meet you in the power of the gospel and in the power of his spirit. The other barrier to this kind of lifestyle is the sins of others. We want people that we serve to respond in a certain way. We want them to appreciate our service. Uh, we want them to make serving them enjoyable. Uh, we want it to not feel like a burden to us. We want it to fit in our schedule, right? We don't want any unpleasant surprises. That's, that's the kind of service that we want. Uh, but obviously that's not going to happen because the people that we're serving are sinners just like us. And honestly, real Christ-like service is going to be done unto people who are not making the service all that easy. I mean, did we make the service of Jesus all that easy? I mean, no. Well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for them, you know? Like, we were, we were not making it easy. And so that, that, that's part of what Paul is describing here. Uh, he, he is saying this is much more than just kind of a mutual, I'll help you, you help me, and we'll, we'll all have this nice society. He's describing a kind of selfless service to others that makes absolutely no sense outside the gospel. But if the gospel is true, and I believe that it is, 
and it has saved us from our sin, then it makes perfect sense to allow it to shape us as we empty ourselves, as Christ did, of self-interest and self-promotion and look to the interests of others. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you just in awe of the incarnation and the death that was died on the cross by the divine Son of God for us, for our sins to be forgiven. And then your exaltation to the right hand of the Father, a victory over sin and death and hell. And Lord, because of that, we worship you today. We bow down to you today. You are our King. We, we're not going to wait to the end of days to bow our knees. We're, we're not going to wait to the end of the days to, uh, to declare that you are Lord of all. We declare it today. And we worship you, Lord. And we also confess to you, Lord, as we see your humiliation and your exaltation and we consider, as Paul is teaching us here in Philippians 2, that we are to exemplify that in our lives, Lord. That is a high bar. And we know we cannot do it in our own strength. And so we confess that to you. We confess that our natural inclination, at least in our sinful flesh, is to look out for number one. And that number one is us as we look to our own self-interest and self-promotion. Lord, we confess that to you. We confess that we behave that way with our own family, our own friends, our own church, our neighbors, people that we work with, Lord. And so would you forgive us? But not only forgive us, would you transform us? Lord, we do, we do want to exemplify you, your humiliation, your exaltation. We want to exemplify that gospel in the relationships that we have, in our families, Lord, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our people at work, Lord, with our our fellow church members. And so we, we, we pray, Lord, would you give us this kind of, of deep, uh, authentic service to others and that we would do it, not for our name's sake, Lord, but we would do it for your name's sake. And we'll pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.